0: We'll open your Bibles to the book of Judges, to Judges chapter 4 today, and if you're new here, we have been in a series on the book of Judges that we're calling Broken People Faithful God. The book of Judges really illustrates that. It illustrates that we are a broken, flawed people in so many ways, but we have a God who is faithful. And we've come to chapter 4 of Judges, and we're calling this message, Does not the Lord go out before you? Does not the Lord go out before you? That comes from verse 14 of chapter four and so we're going to be covering really this whole chapter this morning so i'm not going to take time to read it before the message because we're going to be going through the whole chapter throughout the course of the message something happened in this room that changed the world what you see on the screen here is a room in the city of Bethlehem where a man named Jerome translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. It took him 23 years to do it. He labored for 23 years in this room to translate the Bible into the most popular language of his day. And his translation stood as the standard for a thousand years of church history, Jerome was a game changer in so many ways in the history of the church. But in one of his most famous quotes, Jerome recognized what most people of his day did not, and that is that God has often used women as game changers in his kingdom. Jerome once said this, these people do not know that while Barak trembled, Deborah saved Israel, that Esther delivered from supreme peril the children of God. Is it not to women that our Lord appeared after His resurrection? Yes, and the men could then blush for not having sought what the women had found. Now, we come to the chapter in God's Word today, Judges 4, that features one of the heroic women that Jerome mentions in this quote, Deborah. But what is so compelling about Deborah's life is that she recognized that ultimately it was God who was the hero and that it is God's salvation that we most desperately need. Judges 4 is about salvation. First of all, it's about the need for salvation. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, once again, we see this pattern that we see throughout the book of Judges. And the pattern that we've talked about that we see time and time again in Judges is this. It's disobedience followed by discipline followed by deliverance. So, there is disobedience The people are doing, once again, what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And once again, they bring God's discipline on themselves. So, last time, we looked at the first judge that God raised up, Ehud. And then they had peace for 80 years under Ehud. God gave them rest. He gave them uh, Prosperity. Uh, he gave them peace for that period of years, but then what happens? Ehud dies, and once again they they plunge into sin, and they bring painful discipline on themselves. It's it's like it's like they can't stand prosperity. <laughs> you know, every time things are going well, they forget God. They forget God, and they. They plunge once again into spiritual lethargy and into sin. It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like Israel needs to be in critical care in order to see their critical need for God. And too often it's like that with us. You know, as a pastor... Um, I, a lot of times I get to see people in the, the deepest moments of life. Spent a lot of times in, in ICU waiting rooms and hospitals over the past 23 years. And it's remarkable when we're in crisis how priorities just get so clear, isn't it? I mean the stuff that was a big deal like a week ago or a day ago suddenly seems so trivial. When a loved one is in crisis, or when we are, I mean, things just get so, so crystal clear in that moment. And we understand that, you know, all the stuff that was a priority shouldn't really be the priority. And the stuff that we were worried about that seemed like such a big deal to us seems so small. And we understand that it's really God that's the. The big deal. And you know, it's a shame that a lot of times either someone that we love has to be flat on their back or we have to be flat on our back before we'll look up to God. We, we tend to get spiritually lazy and lethargic during the good times. You know, when everything is humming along, when everything is going well, and that was the case with Israel. And this is a pattern that we see over and over and over again in Judges. They'll enter into a period of rest and they take God for granted. And they plunge into sin and God has to discipline them once again. And in this case, His instrument of discipline is the Canaanite king, Jabin. And the commander of Jabin's army, Sisera. These are evil men And they cruelly Oppress Israel for two decades For twenty years They just have a jack boot To the throat Of Israel And then what happens again in Judges We see the pattern again and again They'll be in, the, the people are in pain They bring discipline on themselves And what happens They cry out to the Lord for help And God, in sheer undeserved mercy, even though they brought the problem on themselves, God, in His mercy, will raise up a deliverer, a judge. And in chapter 4, it's Deborah who we're going to meet today. So Israel, at this point in its history, is in desperate need of, of physical salvation. Jabin and Sisera just are oppressing these people cruelly. They're rampaging throughout the land. they got 900 chariots. Chariots were like the drones of their day. They were just sort of a, 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 a weapon that transformed a warfare. If you had access to chariots, then, you know, it was, uh, it was game over in a lot of cases. And they had 900 of them. And they're rampaging throughout the land. And so Israel is in desperate need of of physical salvation, but far more desperately in need of spiritual salvation. Because what does it say about them that every time one of these judges dies, that they plunge back into sin? They have 80 years of peace under Ehud, but then Ehud dies, and they plunge back into into sin. What does that say about their hearts? You know, so often, I mean, we'll see kids who are raised in in Christian families. You know, they're raised in the faith. Mom and dad love the Lord, but, you know, they graduate from high school and they drop church like a hot potato. I mean, what's up with that? Well, it shows something, doesn't it? It shows that their faith wasn't really their faith. Because the moment that mom and dad's external controls were off of them, the internal condition of their heart, the reality or the unreality of their faith, is shown to be what it is. What's needed is a new heart. Israel needs a new heart. The reason that they plunge back into sin every time a judge dies is because their heart is not right. And so when the external controls are removed from them, the condition of their heart is revealed. They plunge back into sin. What does it take to have a transformation of the heart? Only God can do it. God tells us in Ezekiel, In Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, when God touches us with his Holy Spirit and God takes away that heart of stone and he puts in a soft heart a heart of flesh then obedience is the natural result of that when god transforms your heart you want to obey him from your heart not because there's a judge in place not because your mom and dad want you to not because of you know you think that's the way that you should be because you're a member of the church or whatever you love him you love him and because you love him you want to obey him from your heart A few years ago, there was a student named Kevin Ruse who transferred to Liberty University from Brown University, Ivy League school. And on the outside, Kevin appeared to be just an exemplary Christian. He participated in devotions at Liberty. He was in church. Every Sunday, they even asked him after a while to, to, to lead devotions in his dorm. But what no one knew is that Kevin Ruse wasn't a Christian at all. He had signed a book contract to write a book on evangelical Christians. And he thought there's no better place to do that than liberty. So he transferred there as a student. And Kevin Ruse said this about his experience. He said at Liberty, see, no one asks me about my faith anymore, so I blend in. I rarely have to do anything more than keep up up my Christian signifiers, going to Bible study, praying before meals, being on time to church. Now, listen, the same thing could happen at any Christian school or at any church for that matter. We can go through the motions. Everything looks fine on the outside. We keep up our Christian signifiers, as Kevin puts it here. But, friend, what's the condition of your heart this morning? Do you have a genuine, authentic love for Christ? God gives new hearts. What's the condition of your heart today? And so we see our need for salvation. The second thing that we see in chapter 4 is the source of salvation. Verses 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now what do we see time after time in judges? After the people are subjected to discipline, they'll cry out in pain. God hears their cry and He will raise up a deliverer. He'll raise up a judge. And in chapter 4, it's Deborah. In many ways, Deborah is the most admirable of all the judges that we'll look at in this series because of the spiritual authenticity of her life. And this was a culture. I would say it was a culture in which women were uh, seen and not heard. That would be giving it too much credit. Too often it was that women were not seen much at all. (laughs) They were kept so much in the background. But in a culture like that, Deborah is both men and women come to her for wisdom. She's a prophetess. She's a judge, she's a great leader, and the strength of her leadership only serves to highlight the weakness of a lot of the men in this chapter. Look at verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. Now, Barak is the leader of Israel's army. But he's afraid to use the army. <laughs> God has told him, You were to go out and you're to fight the Canaanites, but he's afraid to do it. You know, there's, there's a story uh, during the early part of the Civil War, in which uh, the Union General George McClellan had this, this powerful army at his disposal, but he was too timid to lead them out in the battle, to the point that an exasperated President Lincoln said at one point, If General McClellan is not going to use the army, I'd like to borrow it for a while. That was kind of like Barack. I mean, he's got this, you know, he's, God's told him what to do. He just. Refuses to lead them into battle. And so Deborah here, here in verse 6, is basically saying to Barak, the commander of the Israelite army, she's basically saying, hey, when are you going to man up? And do what God has called you to do, and lead these men into battle. And look at what he says to her in verse 8. Barak said to her if you will go with me, I will go But if you will not go with me, I will not go In other words, he's basically saying Deborah, would you please hold my hand? And I'll lead the men into battle She responds to him in verse 9 And she said, I will surely go with you Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, on the surface, Deborah is just sort of giving a prophecy about what is going to happen because Sisera quite literally is going to be given into the hand of a woman as we're going to see. But she's saying something even deeper. Remember that women in this culture are seen as lowly, weak. What... Deborah is, is saying here is that God is going to show His power and His strength by working through those that are have, uh, traditionally in that culture were, were looked upon as weak and lowly. It's going to do it. God says, "I don't need, I don't need a mighty military strong man to get it done. I don't need 900 chariots or one chariot to get it done. I'm going to do it through Deborah. Through Jael, these two handmaidens of the Lord. You know, God often does things like this. When the Messiah is born, you know, Jesus isn't born into... uh, uh, sort of a high and mighty situation, right? I mean, Jesus is born into a family whose parents... His parents were so lacking in power and in influence, they're not even able to get a room for a, a, a pregnant woman in labor to give birth to her child. You know, he, he's raised in a, in a poor, humble family... Backwater town Nazareth, that was a, a town that was really the butt of jokes. Jesus never commands a military force. He doesn't even own a home. He often had no place to lay his head. He never holds a political office, and he he dies the most humiliating death that a person could die: death on a cross. God says, I'm, I'm going to show you how it's my power that's going to change the world. I don't need all the things that you that you think have to happen in order for miracles to happen. No, I'm going to show forth my glory by making the Messiah to be this kind of a person. And I'm going to raise him from the dead. And then what happens? He begins to turn the world around through the early church, but but who's who's part of the early church? It starts out as this you know this group of fishermen, (laughs) very ordinary people, slaves, women, but yet through these ordinary people. God is doing these extraordinary things. And what does Paul say about the early church in 1 Corinthians 1? He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, God is going to do this in such a way that there's going to be no mistake about who did it. He's going to show forth His power, His glory. By doing this through The hand of those who were traditionally looked upon as low. These women. And see, Deborah recognizes this. Deborah sees it so clearly. It's what's so great about her. It's her spiritual discernment. Deborah recognizes this is nothing but the power of God. It's God that's going to do this. I'm only an instrument. What does she say in verse 14, which is really the hinge verse of this whole chapter? Deborah said to Barak, up, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Deborah understands this is God. It's going to be one, Not because of us. Not because of human power. But because of God's power. Does not the Lord go out before you? You know, why is it that a lot of times when we face challenges the last thing we do is pray i mean we we try to solve the problem every other way and then maybe we'll throw in a prayer at the end friends i'm telling you the first thing we need to do is pray <laughs> because what we need is god we need god's power we need god to go out before us he's the source of salvation third We see the providence of salvation. Now, when we speak about God's providence, what are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that God orchestrates events. That God is working all things together for His glory and for our good. That God, behind the scenes, oftentimes, He's He's orchestrating people and events and circumstances all to further His own purposes. Now, let's look at verse 11. It says, Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father in law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak and Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Now, the first time that I read verse 11, you know, I thought, Why is this here? Because <laughs> basically, the flow of the text, you, you read it and you think. This could go very naturally from verse 10 to verse 12, and we wouldn't miss anything. Why why does he take the time in verse 11 to tell us that this guy Heber moves from one part of Israel to another? What is significant about that? Well, what's significant is that this man Heber is married to a woman of faith named Jael. And she is going to figure very prominently in this story as we go along. In other words, what was God doing? God was putting, by having this guy move to this place at this time, God is putting the right person at the right place at the right time. How many of you can look back on your story and see God doing things like this? How many of you can look back and you can see moments in your life that seemed like they were completely insignificant at the time and they turned out to be life-changing? The moment that you met your future spouse. The moment that you met the person who ended up opening up the door for your career. How many of you can look back on your life and you can see a painful trial in your life, the the most difficult thing you walk through maybe, and you can look back on that, that thing that seemed just so dark and so perplexing at the time and you couldn't figure out what on earth is going on. And now you can look back and you can see that God was at work beautifully and that some of the most beautiful things in your life and some of the greatest formation of your character happened because of that thing that God allowed to happen. That's God's providence. That's His providence. He's, he's in control. And He's causing all things to work together for His glory and for our good. So, what happens here in the story? Finally, Barack does what God had told him to do leads the army into battle, and of course, because God is with them, what happens? Verses 15 and 16. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. Who did it? The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots of the army and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So, this is a smashing victory that God wins. Uh, the, every Canaanite soldier, they all fall, all except one Sisera, their commander. Sisera turns out to be somewhat of a sissy. Okay? Because instead of dying with his men, what does he do? He flees. He flees, and he flees to a certain tent. What tent? Whose tent? Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, who just happened to be at that place at that time. Now what happens next? Verses 18 and following. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here say no? Now understand something. Sisera is not only a coward, he's a criminal. He's a war criminal. At the beginning of chapter 4, we see that he's cruel. He has been part of this brutalization of people for two decades. In chapter 5, we see the song of Deborah. And part of, part of the lyrics of that song make it clear that Sisera and his soldiers have raped Hebrew girls and women. This man is a criminal. He's a coward. He's a criminal. And now he thinks he's gotten away. He thinks he's gotten off scot-free. He thinks he's protected his 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 belly is full, his thirst is satisfied. You know he's lying down beneath this rug. He feels so good about it that he just he just drifts off to sleep. For the last time, what happens? Verse twenty one. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. I guess he did, right? That'll do it. That'll do it. Um, This is dripping with irony because in this culture it was women who took care of the tents. Yeah, they were the ones who would put up the tents whenever they would move. So a hammer and a tent peg; these were like household appliances to jail. Just you know, second, to drive hammer into a uh, hammer into uh, drive a tent peg into the ground was second nature to her. She just drives it through Sisera's head first in this case. Now, once again, here in Judges, we're confronted with a violent, a violent kind of a death. I mean, we saw this last time in chapter three, right? I mean, Eglon, another evil person, super evil person, dies in just an, a, a very graphic, violent way. And, and once again, a lot of people would read this story and think, oh, you know, too violent, too violent. I mean, this, this, this guy's asleep, you know, he's taken by surprise. I mean, um, and they would begin to protest. Let me ask you something were you protesting when the SEALs went in by surprise and killed Osama bin Laden? You know, um, would you protest the fact that, that people got together, including some Christians like the pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that they got together and they plotted, unsuccessfully, but plotted to kill Adolf Hitler? You know, Bonhoeffer once said this he said we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice we are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself in other words what bonhoeffer recognized was that it's not only it's not enough to simply try to help those who are the victims of brutality In his case, in the 1930s and early 40s, Jewish people. It's not not enough simply to help those who are being brutalized, but at some point, people of conscience have to drive a spoke in the wheel. You have to stop the wheels of injustice from grinding. Hitler has to be stopped. And eventually, Bonhoeffer reached the conclusion he has to be killed. See, in a fallen world, like the one that we live in, this is reality. You know, this is why we should thank God for those who serve in our military. This is why we should thank God for police officers who patrol our streets, because in a world that is this broken and this fallen, were it not for those people out there doing our jobs, I mean... More people who are innocent would be be killed. This is why, I mean, we have men and women who are across the globe right now as I speak who are engaged in espionage for our country. You know what? If they weren't doing their jobs, there would have been another 9-11 long before now. This is why, in some cases, there have to be targeted killings of terrorists to keep them from killing many, many more people. Listen, this is hard to talk about, but it's reality. We we live in a broken, fallen world. And we have to come to terms with that. And we have to understand that, 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 that God, God is a God who must deal with evil. You know, people in our culture, so many of them, they just want to think about God as a soft God. Oh, He's a God who would never, He would never judge anyone. He would never judge evil. We want to think of God as sort of, you know, sort of a mealy, uh, serapy, sentimental, soft God. The old man in the sky. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Let me tell you, Jesus talked a lot about hell. Talked a lot about God's love, but he talked a lot about hell. He talked a lot about judgment. And even the way that he dies is an expression of not only God's love, but God's wrath. It shows us how seriously God takes sin. It shows us that to a righteous God, evil, and yes, our evil, cannot be winked at. It has to be dealt with. It has to be judged. And either we're going to turn to a Savior who took our judgment on Himself on the cross, or the Bible says we'll experience God's judgment ourselves. And his resurrection and his ascension show that God is going to one day definitively judge evil. What does Paul say? In his preaching in Athens in Acts 17, he says, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Christ is a sign that God is going to judge the world. Christ is King, and the King is coming. And when he comes, the Bible says in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And friend, if you refuse to do that in this life, while you have opportunity, if you refuse to bow before Christ as your king, as your savior, in this life, then you'll bow before him as your judge in the next if you'll bow before Christ as Savior and King now, then your judge becomes your Savior. Your Savior is coming. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray for anyone here who is not ready to stand before You. Father, I pray that now, while there is still time, while there is opportunity, that you would work in hearts to see Jesus, to trust in Him, to bow the knee of our hearts to Him, to humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin, confess our sin to You, and turn to the only One who can deal with it, who has dealt with it on the cross. And who rose from the dead that we might have life and who is coming again. May we know you as our Savior on that day when you appear. As we just continue to bow before the Lord in just a time of reflection. You know friend I would ask you. Are you ready to stand before Christ? Would you stand before him as your Savior or as judge? The Bible tells us that we're all sinners. All of us. And the sin in our lives has to be judged. God is righteous, He's holy. God can't wink at evil, He can't tolerate evil. The good news of the gospel. Is that on the cross, Jesus took the evil, our evil upon himself. He he took on himself the sins, the darkness, the evil of all who will trust in him. Would you turn to the Savior today? Give your life to him. Say, Lord Jesus, you are my king. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for... Taking my sins, taking God's righteous wrath against sin on yourself. And I believe that you rose from the dead. I give my life to you. If you're here today as a Christian, listen, what's the condition of your heart today? It's so easy to get into a rut, isn't it? It's so easy just to sort of demonstrate kind of the externals and, you know, the Christian signifiers and kind of go through the motions. Where's your heart today, Christian? Do you have a passionate love for God in your heart? Are you closer to him than you were six years ago or six months ago? Is there a love for him in your heart? Ask God to do a work in your heart. Don't let it be said that you have to be flat on your back in order to look up and see your critical need for the Lord. See it now. See it now. Father, work in our hearts now during this time of decision. We ask it in Jesus' name. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with him, you want to know more about what that means, we would love to serve you and talk with you and pray with you uh, during our time of invitation or after our service today. If you're here and just uh, in need for prayer or you want to pray at the altar, you can certainly do that. Um, If you're here and God's speaking to you about, uh, about being a part of this church family, then we would love to welcome you. Let's stand together as we sing. God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. And you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to My email is pastor at Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.